we feel like we've got pretty solid IP protection on what we're doing. Philosophically, my vision for how you do great work is by doing great work. You have to create a great product and that should be your go-to-market foundation, not creating great IP and sitting on that as your defensive barrier. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar developer and consulting firm. Our website's reneuenergy.com. I'm excited to have on the podcast Whit Fulton. He's the CEO and founder of Connector. Connector unlocks the massive potential of distributed energy resources, DERs, by turning the meter socket into the utility all-in-one plug in point for solar storage, electric vehicles, and beyond. Whit founded Connector to give inventors a place to solve meaningful problems and to ensure they have an ownership stake in the solutions they create. His personal mission is to create technologies and business approaches that unlock profitable models for renewable energy. Witt honed his analysis, negotiation, and product development skills through a series of senior managerial positions in energy, analytics, consultancies, and cleantech startups. There's a lot of interesting things that Whip talks about on the podcast. Some of them is regarding opportunities and challenges with the distributed energy resources, DERs, His flagship product, the Collar, which provides plug-and-play grid integration for DERs like solar storage and EVs, how the grid of the future will look, and also his entrepreneurial journey, which was really interesting to hear as a non-technical founder of the company, and also his suggestions for entrepreneurs to raise capital for their company. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to interview Whit Fulton, and he's the CEO of Connector. Whit, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Benoit. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. We haven't actually talked about you know smart meters, your collar technology, and how it could impact basically the grid in the future. It would be great if you could talk about your company, Connector. We talked about it briefly in the intro, but it would be great to hear your perspective and what you guys have been doing. All right. So at Connector, our mission is to make clean distributed energy the go-to resource for power in the 21st century. We got started eh, roughly 10 years ago with some funding from the Department of Energy's SunShot program, and then with some additional funding from the Elemental Accelerator in Hawaii, which have both been fantastic partners for us. Right now, we're about 30 people, mostly in Philadelphia and D.C. areas, so we're still pretty small, but we're growing pretty quickly. What Connector does, in order for you to really understand that, I think it's important to understand a little bit about me and the way I see the world. Being a CEO, our favorite subjects always ourselves, so I'll give you my backstory. So I'm the grandson of Inventor. There's one of those Batman movies where the guy gets yanked out of a building in Hong Kong by a skyhook system. My grandfather invented that. And so when I was growing up, he did that and a bunch of other things. So like in my family, there's always been a real bias toward how do you make something that fixes a problem, that addresses an issue. So while I love policy and while I love economics and the market, my first love and first go-to to solve a problem is to how can we make a thing? How do we create a new thing that will solve a problem? So you layer that on top of the my upbringing as a child of you know rural New England, where we were constantly panicking about acid rain in the 1980s. 
that imprinted itself upon my psyche very deeply. And so my personal mission from like high school on was like, how do we get rid of fossil fuels as sort of the primary resource that we depend on to power our economy? And so if you push those two things together, my idea was like, how do I create something that balances the whole market and the cost in favor of distributed renewables? And I see the world in terms of what can we create? And so Connector as a company grew out of that sort of driving mission and the idea that you can make things that actually solve problems. And that's the fun part of it. So that's what we do in our show. That's pretty amazing. And that's amazing what you've done in the 10 years and how the company is growing you know, rapidly now. It would be great if you could talk about, you know, speak about the meter collar and how that works and go into the different products that you're offering and how that improves, you know, increases the use of distributed energy, specifically solar. Yeah. So obviously you've got a pretty well-informed listener base. So I probably don't need to do too much about defining distributed energy resources. But for those of you who might be brand new to the subject, a distributed energy resource is something that is not a big central station power plant, like a coal plant or a big dam or anything that's large scale, which is traditionally how we create power in the United States. Small scale, mounted on uh, commercial buildings, mounted on rooftops, like solar power, electric vehicles count, energy storage, little batteries that go on your computer, but now are household and building scale. Those are distributed energy resources, and they can create power at the grid edge where power is more typically consumed. One of the big challenges of distributed energy resources, even though the cost of the actual assets, the solar power, has been going up very rapidly over the course of the last 10 years, the actual fundamental cost to connect those resources to a building have been pretty much the same you know, forever and ever. What people do now most of the time is they go to what's called a service panel. It's where the circuit breakers are in your house. Let's take a typical house, for example. And you have to wire into that circuit breaker panel, that service panel. That service panel requires a lot of, like every job's custom. There's a lot of custom wiring that goes in there. And uh, every home is a service panel in a different place. Some are older, some are newer. And uh, it really means that every distributed energy resource connection is sort of a customized install. What I realized in my previous job working for another energy startup was that you Utilities are using this wonderful asset that's on the side of every building in the United States right now. And that's the meter socket. So the meter socket, if you look at the bubble meter on the side of your house or building where you live, behind that, there are four prongs, just like an electrical outlet for your house. Mm -hmm. If you pull the meter off, you have touch points to where the power comes in from the grid, then where it goes into your house. And we realized that we can create an adapter that you plug in right there that allows you to effectively create a plug and socket connection for these distributed resources for your home. In a nutshell, that's what we do. We create a plug and socket adapter that allows you to connect solar power, electric vehicles, or energy storage to your house at a fraction of the cost of what it traditionally takes to do all that wiring for the home. Yeah, that is a great summary of that. And can you talk about some of the other benefits as well that this provides? Yeah, I mean, if you think about the way we think about your appliances, like your dishwasher or your dryer, like heavy appliances that use a lot of power, there's still a thing you can go out to the store and buy and bring home and you can plug it into the wall. You understand how that works. We think in order to scale massively the sort of opportunity for DERs, we need to make them plug and play as well. And so by creating this meter collar adapter, we've created a plug and socket interface. And what that does is it can knock off anywhere between $600 and $3,000 on an installation of a solar system for your home. It's super simple. It's identical every time. It's always on the outside of the house. So you don't have to go inside the house for logistics issues. It just keeps everything incredibly easy. That was sort of the low-hanging fruit for us. How do we create a physical plug and play interface to make the cost of connecting power from these resources to 
the grid much lower. And we've accomplished that. However, there's a secondary benefit that we thought we could drive. And this is really about how do you make those grid edge resources like solar and whatnot work interoperably with the grid power, with the utilities run. Up until now, you put solar on your house or on your building, and when the sun shines, the power flows and flows back into the grid. And the utility, the operator of the grid, just eats that power. Like, we take it, we manage it, that's that. But as you get more and more and more of these systems being distributed across the electric grid, more and more of them are just pouring power into the grid that makes it more challenging for the grid to accept at certain times. Say, the power draw or demand on the grid's really low at a certain time, and the production of the solar is really high. The wires can't really handle that imbalance very effectively. And now that utilities, in order to bring a lot more of these resources online, they need to have ways to interact with those resources. So you come back to a connector, what we realize is we can create sort of plug and play, not only power connections, but also data connections. So once you plug a resource into a connector, our vision is that the connector talks to the resource right away. It says, oh, I see you are an Enphase system and you do X, Y, and Z. Okay, Enphase system, you are now registered in the cloud or in the back office as an interoperable asset for grid services. And so these solar PV systems or storage or EVs, which once upon a time had no real interaction with the grid, are now speaking with the grid and acting autonomously to great benefit for the grid, rather than just doing what they do without any recognition of their impact or benefit they could be having. Yeah, that's a really clear description of the benefits of your technology. And I think it's interesting as well, which you mentioned previously about how consumers potentially could take advantage of having these resources and selling it into the grid at opportune times. And instead of getting maybe like a wholesale rate that they're incentivized by higher electricity prices to sell back into the grid with their technology. Yeah, I mean, I'd actually like to riff on that very briefly. There's effectively a business relationship between an owner of a DER and the grid operator. And that business relationship is really defined right now by, for solar at least, what's called net energy metering. Obviously, net energy metering basically means that for every kilowatt hour that you push out to the grid, you sell it at the exact same rate you bought it from the grid, which means the grid is acting as a big battery for your solar PV system, which is wonderful. That's an awesome model. It's incredibly simple. The customer who buys a solar PV system understands it. It's pretty easy to track for the utility. It's a great model. However, it was particularly great once upon a time when you had very low penetration of solar on the grid. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, you get to the point where, let's just say an artificial world where everyone had solar on the roof. If everyone was sending back power and buying it from the grid at the exact same rate, no one would really be paying for the grid. And what's more, no one would be paying for the impacts on the grid that the solar generates cumulatively. I'm obviously a huge fan of solar. I want to see it everywhere. But I also want to recognize in order for us to scale it massively, there has to be an economic model that makes sense for all the participants within the system. And I believe strongly that the value that these distributed resources can generate is very high and doesn't have to be all about just sending a kilowatt hour back versus buying a kilowatt from the grid. And that's where you get into the more sophisticated dynamics about how grids work. Once upon a time, it's like, I buy a kilowatt hour, I sell a kilowatt hour. But the truth of the matter is, the grid needs things like voltage support. It needs frequency support. It's basically the characteristics of the energy that flow through the wires that make sure the wires stay within the operating tolerances that they have. 
distributed resources can provide those values on a very cost-effective basis, but they need to be communicated with and they need to have that communication simplified. So what we're trying to do is we are effectively trying to create a plug-and-play interface between the grid operator who needs all these different things from DERs, not just kilowatt hours, and the system owner who will then get a check in the mail or in their, their power bill every month saying, hey, your system provided these great services to us. We're going to pay you for them. Oh, or in exchange, you're going to sell the power back at a little bit less than you bought it from us. Because ultimately, that's a scalable model. Everybody wins. Everyone's getting paid for the resources they provide. And that's where we see the grid needs to go. Definitely. That's a great explanation of it. And it'll be interesting to see, like, for example, time of use rates become more popular where it has in certain states or certain utilities. So it'll be interesting to see as the grid becomes more integrated with DER, how utilities and energy companies will adapt when it comes yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk about barriers that you have to use the technology today? Yeah, for sure. Obviously, with this big honking socket on the side of a house, it should be obvious that we should plug in things there that add more value than just putting a meter there. However, that socket, the rights to use it are owned by utilities. And utilities, they have deeply ingrained preferences toward doing things within their own fiefdom. And for good reason. Utility's job is to keep the lights on and keep it safely and at lowest possible cost. If you introduce outside variables with things that they're not used to, they take a long time to check it, make sure it works, adopt it. So we're currently working with 13 utilities across the United States, some on large scale, some on fairly small scale. But every one of those required us to go through a process where they tested the meter collar, they checked it, they looked at what the value streams were from it, they figured out how it could integrate with their back office if we're using a data-enabled version. It's just a very long, slow process. However, increasingly, we are seeing two things happening. There are some states that recognize the speed and value of having meter collar adapters be available to their customers. And so Colorado just passed a landmark bill in the uh, the Colorado state legislature that mandates that all the utilities in Colorado have to approve meter collar adapters, you know, a certain reasonable time frame. And all the utilities we talked to there reached out to us about this and said, yeah, this thing is great, but now you may it a priority for us. We had a bunch of other priorities we had before. We couldn't push this up on our priority stacks, other things we needed to do. Now this is the law. We'll do it. It's great. We can work with you. Oh, and by the way, can you help us with electric vehicles too? And we said, absolutely great. And that's really the second thing we're working on. We're really working on the optimization of our product for connecting electric vehicles, not only for you know, plugging them in and charging them and having you know, really easy charging, but also for using vehicle-to-home backup in the case of wildfires or power outages. We're trying to create a plug-and-play solution where your car can keep your house online without having to do a bunch of really complicated transfer switch wiring. Yeah, that's so interesting if you think about it because like Ford recently came out with the F-150 and the electric version of it and potentially you could use the battery from the truck to back up your home. I forget how many days that they said. Full disclosure, Ford, if you're listening, I just put my deposit down on the F-150 Lightning. Very excited to get your truck in my hands. (laughs) It should be an amazing vehicle. I think it's a pretty cool thing you guys brought it out. It seems like you're adapting to basically the markets changing, obviously the increased proliferation of solar, but then also energy storage, EV charging, and adapting your collar product to basically provide the most value for all the parties involved as well. Solar is always going to be our first love. You know, like that's our baby. That's what we want to see proliferate. And we're always going to have a major foot in that camp and trying to get 
get solar on as many roofs as we can in the United States. That said, energy storage and electric vehicles are growing as such a large share of the interconnections that we're seeing. We believe that we're going to be able to do massive good by creating this plug-and-play EV charging infrastructure. Unless any homeowner with their where they park their car is within any kind of reasonable distance where their meters in their house to be able to do an incredibly low-cost, easy plug-and-play connection for their electric vehicle charger. We're really looking very closely at that model, both to the general market and working through utility programs where they provide the collar and the charger themselves. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. And I know you've been focused talking about the collar, but what about like the other products like the connector bridge and connector cloud? It seems like these are all seamless things that are connected to the collar. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned before that the initial value was physical connection to power. But we also recognize that because we're sitting in that really super valuable footprint, you know, you're right there at the connection point with the grid, the home, and the DER. What can you add at that nexus that gives you more value, that allows you to do more things, unlock more applications? And we built out Originally, our first version was a pilot we did with Austin Energy, where we had this intermediary control device where the Austin Energy grid operator would send out commands to the caller, and then we had an Ethernet wire from the caller over to the inverter, and it would tell the inverter what to do. So we had all this intelligence around adding stuff inside the device. That connection was janky. You know, we always thought, oh yeah, it's you know, plug and play, great. But then we realized that turning that physical connection into a wireless connection, where we have a little bridge module that speaks to the caller and goes back to the utility, would make it a lot easier to connect. And then we realized, oh, wait, this little bridge module that speaks to the collar, that speaks back to utility, how would we forget about the collar altogether? Yes. We think of it as the Amazon Fire TV stick for inverters. So <laughs> you plug it in the inverter, it has all the capabilities in Modbus or 2030.5 or a couple of different protocols that can speak to any inverter out there. And then that can go back to either utility back office or to our back office or to a third-party back office that it can draw the data off of the inverter they can also push new commands down the inverter to change its operating profiles. So we're trying to create, we're disaggregating our products a little bit in such a way that they can get to market quicker and more easily. And also just, again, plug and play connectivity, whether it's in a call or not, that's where we're going. That's pretty interesting to see. I mean, it's all about creating value and it seems like you're working on, you know, any way to, with using your technology or if there's a need to create value. So that's really interesting. And I appreciate you explaining that. You also mentioned the Connector Cloud. That's really our back office system for just, it's a little meter data management system where we gather all the data that we generate from the callers back in the back office. We've got you know a mapping GUI. We've got basic operational profiles we can push out and a bunch of APIs we can connect to other systems. And it's a wonderful product. By design, it's pretty limited in what it does. You know, data connectivity, pushing new operating software down to devices, and then handing off that data to other third-party systems. That's what we do right now. Over time, we end up building more DERMs or VPP solutioning into that cloud product. As of right now, we just want to make it a really strong intermediary between that and other operation systems. I know we've been talking about the home a lot. Are you help working with residential customers only, or do you also work with commercial industrial customers? Is there the easiest thing for us to do and the obvious choice for us is residential because the interconnection costs are such a large percentage of the physical cost of connecting that you know putting a collar on plugging in there is really where we've always sort of focused our firepower. That said, we've had a lot of people ask us for a CNI solution. The collar itself on a CNI solution would have to handle an awful lot of amperage. And the design considerations around that is probably not where we're going to be anytime soon. So to be honest, we probably won't have a meter collar adapter for a CNI solution. That said, 
we do have a lot of good friends in the CNI space who say every time I put the systems on, like a utility makes me pay you know ten thousand to forty thousand dollars to put a control and monitoring box on the solution, and it's costing me an arm and a leg. They're really slow with these sometimes. So it's killed us in terms of the economics of projects. Do you have anything we can help with that? And the connector bridge solution that I mentioned previously, I won't give you the exact price on it because we're still bringing it to market, but it's a lot less than ten thousand dollars. Tell you that much. And you can plug it into any of our that's compliant, that has the standards you know, that we can interface with, and we can draw the information off of it through a cybersecure backhaul, Ryzen 4 or 5G to our back office or to utility back office. And we can also push down the you know, curtailment or a ramp up and ramp down commands if there's an overvolted situation on the line. So we can get all the needed value that utilities are forcing some installers to pay you know, ten dollars to $40,000 on at a tiny fraction of the cost. And that's a big solution we see a value add we can have the market next year. Yeah, definitely. That's great to know. And I'm curious to see in the next few years how big you're able to build, obviously, residential homes, but then also commercial industrial going forward. It would be great. And kind of related to this question, how many customers do you have now? And what do you forecast like the growth rate in the next five to 10 years as more distributed energy resources you know, go online? Sure. As far as customers go, we really have two major categories. We've got utilities. You know, So we're working with 13 of them right now. We have solar installers. In some states like Vermont and Hawaii and a couple other places, we just sell directly to the installer. In those cases, we're working with all... You know, we sell directly to Tesla, Sunrun, Vivint, all the big regionals. Anyone who can buy our product is basically using it. And we've had great success, great relationships with them. We have around 10,000 units installed. So about 10,000 homes have connectors on them right now, which is a great footprint. But we see it expanding very, very rapidly as we get more states and utilities open to using the collar technology. And as the market transitions toward more of that storage and electric vehicle you know, forward push, we're going to see much more quick adoption because we're getting away from the utilities sort of reticence around net energy metering and solar and being fully on board with building managed load. So utilities make money by selling kilowatt hours. You know, that's historically. And the kilowatt hour footprint has been falling in the country. The growth hasn't been there. So utilities are like, oh, we've got all these power plants. What am I going to do with them? But if you have electric vehicles, they can draw a ton more power. You're like adding a new house every time you plug one of those things in. And uh, the utilities are like, great, EVs, bring them on. We want as much as we can, but don't break our grid. <laughs> so we go to the utilities and say, oh yeah, we have this plug and play solution for connecting EV chargers. Oh, and by the way, we can also have a limiting factor in there to make sure those EVs don't break your grid during peak hours. So we will help you build managed load managed demand. And so that concept has had extraordinarily strong resonance with our customer base. And so we're really looking forward to keep pushing that model out there. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you love like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273 that's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273
That is really interesting. And it's about adding value by managing. And are you doing anything international or is it domestic in the U.S.? For your As of right now, we're focused exclusively on North American markets, U.S. primarily. We've had some discussions with some of the utilities in Canada. We're looking at Mexico a little bit, but that's largely governed by the physical form factor of our core product. The ANSI standard bubble meter that you stick in your house, that's really a North American standard. It's like here, Philippines, Guam, Caribbean, and that's about it. Everywhere else in the world, they use a different hardwired box. And so our solution in its current incarnation doesn't scale internationally the same way it does in the U.S. market, but we're fine with that. We have plans to go overseas with a couple of different iterations. Right now, our job is to conquer the U.S. and we'll be happy with it. Is there similar products to what you have by other companies? I mean, it seems pretty proprietary what you have today. No one's been quite as crazy as we are in terms of smashing your head against a highly regulated market. But our thesis was always that, look, it's such a no-brainer in terms of connectivity. Just keep cranking the legs and turning the gears until we get this markets open. And we're now we're being gratified with that. That's actually beginning to happen. As far as others who provide similar value and similar approaches to the market, there are a couple of meter caller adapters out there. Tesla actually is bringing one to market, which is a great product. We're totally happy to see them do it. We can actually work with them and get more markets open. There are a couple of simple, dumb versions in California that have been rolled out by California utilities in the past, but they had some severe limitations in how they can be used, and we're looking to overcome that. We also often get compared to some of the smart meter panels, like Dider Electric has one, Span has one, which are beautiful, amazing products for home automation and are going to add a ton of value in terms of connecting to ERs. But the cost point for those products relative to what we do means they're going to be for a different customer segment for a while. And what we do is we focus on how can we create a super low-cost plug-and-play interface that's our core value. Not a lot of competition right now. You know, we'll see. Of course, the next few years, as we get more and more markets open, I can't imagine other people aren't going to try to replicate some of our success. And I think it's a huge advantage that you're working with the utilities first. And that kind of creates a barrier to entry. Yeah, of necessity. That's, that's kind of how it is. It's a quid pro quo. Like, it takes us a long time to kind of get up and running. But once we are, we're pretty well established. And it's harder for others to say, okay, we're also going to do that. So I'm assuming like this is all patent and trademarked. Technology. Yeah, we do. We have five active listed patents. And we also have a handful of others that are in the works. We feel like we've got pretty solid IP protection on what we're doing. Philosophically, my vision for how you do great work is by doing great work. You have to create a great product and that should be your go-to-market foundation, not creating great IP and sitting on that as your defensive barrier. Your execution and doing well by providing great products at a great value is your defensive barrier. And that's far better than IP. That's actually a great perspective because at the end of the day, it's really adding value to the customer, right? An affordable solution, which is allowing you to differentiate the market. So I appreciate you explaining like the strategy and how IP is not really that important at that point. It's always important, but you can't make that the centerpiece of what you do. Centerpiece of what you do has to be execution. It would be great to know about any interesting projects that you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. There's one in particular. One we're really excited about right now is a project working with Con Edison in the greater New York City area. Con Ed or Con Edison or Con Ed for short, they recognize that there's an opportunity the utilities can play to make DERs both easier for their customers to adopt and also add more value to their operating you know, model as a utility. So what they're doing is they're taking what we call the smart connector, which is our meter collar adapter that has monitoring built into it. So they get 
crystal clear visibility on the actual production of those PV systems, not just what gets netted back to the grid. And what they do is if you are a solar installer in the content service territory and you want to get access to using our collar adapters for plug and play connectivity, Con Ed will roll a truck, will install it for you, and you come through and you tie in the system there for free. Con Ed pays for everything. So because this for them, this is grid technology, they're getting the valuable grid data off of it, and they use it for forecasting, planning, grid upgrade, optimization, a whole slew of things they couldn't do otherwise. And so to all solar installers in the greater who serve the Con Ed service territory, you should check out the program. We're, we're ramping up really quickly now, and you could be saving tons of money on service panel upgrades, wiring issues, and just customer satisfaction by taking advantage of the content offering. It's a really cool thing, and we're very proud of it. Really looking forward to taking that program into the future and actually moving into electric vehicles and energy storage as well. Is there a, like, a website link that goes into that program with Con Ed that's working with Connector on it? There are a couple. We found the most effective way to get involved is to go to coned at connector.com. That's this email address that you reach out. There is also a connector at coned.com. I need to double check what the actual URL is, but the one I'm absolutely certain of, coned at connector.com. That'll get you to us. We'll get you signed up with coned. You'll be ready to go. You'll be using meter callers in no time. Sounds like a great opportunity. And obviously, as you said, it's free. That's great to hear. I know when we were talking at the pre-interview about like, this is the first company, you've worked for startups. This is the first company that you're the CEO. It's been about 10 years. How did this come to you as an idea, like the collar and the connection with DERs, especially 10 years ago? Now it seems pretty easy 10 years later that it's an obvious thing. But how did you have that confidence back then? And how did you come up with the product? I worked for another company in the past that had this beautiful idea for an all-in-one battery package, inverter, solar, EV charger, demand response, everything package. And that was Gridpoint. You know, back in the 2007-2008 era, well-funded, great vision for getting the stuff out. Ran smash into that same issue of interconnection costs, the core battery product. And I was working with a utility one day as a business consultant for creating a DER-related utility value proposition. How do you create a business model where utility support DR deployment. And I saw a meter change out. And having gone through putting most of these things in the houses and watching the head banging, trying to make that happen, then seeing someone pull a meter off and saying, that is a socket for the whole house. We can just use that. Why can't we use that? Let's use that. That's what we need to do. And that got the gears turning. Basically, I kept that in the back of my mind for a while, ended up doing a couple other things. And then a couple of years later, I saw the Department of Energy Sunshot solicitation saying, how do we lower soft costs for interconnection and getting sold in the market? I was like, okay, now is the moment I have to do this. And that's really what drove it, is that moment of inspiration from true experience being matched up with someone saying, hey, I want what you got. Give me your solution and here's some money to develop it. That's an amazing story. And it's interesting because this podcast, the Solar Maverick podcast, is about solar and entrepreneurship. You mentioned how you apply for the SunShot program with the DOE and the accelerator that you're part of. And you've raised you know, funds from other opportunities or companies. Can you talk about suggestions that you have for raising money for a company? It's not yeah. always the easiest thing, especially too, like the SunShot DOE, you know, is more complicated, I think, than other processes versus like venture capital, which is probably in itself different from that. But obviously, you have to have a viable business model. 
The first thing is make sure you have your vision clear and your story straight. Like it sounds obvious, but a lot of people have very complex models and very complex things they're trying to do. And it's really hard to understand exactly how they're trading revenue. Like make sure you have a very, very clear and succinct vision and your story straight. What that means oftentimes is you get to do one hard thing. You may have a business model that has a whole bunch of different pieces of the puzzle you'll need to solve and work out. That's not really going to fly. You got to have a bunch of pretty easy things to get done, but one incredibly hard thing that you're going to solve. And when you solve that incredibly hard thing, everything else comes down to executing, executing, executing. So when you call out and make your pitch to anyone saying, here's the hard thing we're doing and here's how we're going to do it. And here's why no one else can do that or no one else is working on it. I think that's a really important and compelling piece of any pitch for raising money. The second piece is data, data, data. Do your market research, do your competitor research, do really, really hone your story and your thinking about the market before you go to war. I'm parroting what I'm sure what a million other people said but no entrepreneur ever does it. Everyone always likes an idea, hacks that way a little bit, gets a prototype and goes after it. And you waste a ton of time and effort down the road that you could have avoided if you'd only done a little more data digging on the front end and make sure you had everything crystal clear or as clear as you possibly could. You're always going to run into new headaches and heartaches and challenges you didn't recognize. But do yourself a favor and really think deeply when it's just you or just you and a partner before you go out and start raising money. And the last thing I'd say is like work your way up to the big leagues I read biography of Motley Crue a couple of years ago. And the rhythm guitarist was like, the way this works is there's like these little cogs you get on as a starting out band and you try to get yourself to a larger car, like bigger venues. And it's kind of the same way with fundraising. Only if you're doing clean tech, you're not going to have the same ultra scaling stories that you will doing a SaaS model for like software. If you're doing a hardware startup stuff, you're going to have a tougher road because people are usually more interested in doing easy startup stuff like software. That said, there are pots of money out there that are dedicated to you. Like some accelerators, some of the Department of Energy, a lot of the people out there will invest in a hard stuff that is underfunded by the general market because you have a mission to solve a problem that is greater than yourself and you're doing it in the hardware space. So look for those small, unique, but super valuable SBIR money from the government as great. And a lot of the accelerators have like little pots of money they can give to you to get you started to get your idea off the ground. That's where you start. Yeah, that's actually really great advice and really clear and succinct. And that's probably the first time that I heard anyone use Motley Crue, a rhythm guitarist. And But it's so true, though, when it comes to raising money or raising capital, that it's basically progressive and taking steps, right? It just yeah, prove it a small step, get a bigger step. And a bigger step, bigger step, rather than pitching yourself to tons of VCs right out of the gate and wasting your time in theirs because you're not a good fit. What do you see as like the grid of the future? It'll be interesting to get your perspective. And also, you mentioned your kind of goal of the company. It'd be great to kind of get a better idea of how you see things are going to play out in the future. I think you have a unique perspective than most people in the industry. I came out of the utility and utility consulting power markets background. So before I did this, multiple startups for like services and distributed energy, I do have a sort of a grid-centric focus. <laughs> this is an energy economics background. That's what my master's is in. It's not a engineering, but it's really the dollars and cents that undergird the value of different assets. There's three major aspects of it. The first is decentralized. And people have talked about this before, but it's multi-way flow with coordination across distributed production assets. Some of it's central station, some of it's grid edge, some of it's demand response, some of it's grid edge production, some of it's storage, but it is largely spread out. And as far as we're concerned, because there's a lot of value at the grid you can generate, like you can avoid losses between the central station and getting 
getting down to the grid edge. Perfect example of this right now. I was talking to one of our utility partners and they're talking about the heat wave issues they're facing right now. And the challenge they're facing isn't a lack of supply at the power station level. Their issue is that their system, the actual distribution system, the substations, things like that, the heat is too high. And so these things are hitting tripping off levels. It isn't even a capacity level as far as like having enough power plants online to provide the kilowatt hours. It is literally the wires in between the grid edge, the customer and the power plant that can't operate in this kind of heat. And so as we push more and more of the generation assets down to the end customer level, you will avoid all those issues because those customers can start providing their own power or provide enough power that can fulfill back up the line. That means the load on the substation is low enough that it doesn't trip offline. So it keeps everybody online. It's like the magic of having just a few extra folks out there that keep that substation within tolerance so everybody can stay online. Not everyone needs to have a DER, just enough of them do to keep the substation up. Number two is autonomous. People talk about like this ever-present communication network with 5G and internet, everything being interoperable all the time. The truth of the matter is, for a lot of stuff we need, you don't need always on persistent communications continuously. The actual data load of that kind of stuff is huge, and especially when you're getting to small distributed assets. What you need is more intelligence baked into the grid edge that is balanced with occasional checks and check-ins, either on an event basis or on a periodic once a day or once a month basis. If you can push enough of that intelligence to the grid edge, you don't need to be investing crazy amounts of money and pushing and pulling tons of data back and forth between the central dispatch and the grid edge. So it's kind of like a Goldilocks scenario. You need enough communication, but you don't need it all the time. Well, you need enough intelligence to the grid edge for it to just make its own autonomous decisions. So that's going to be a really interesting equation to balance out over time. And the last thing, the grid itself, as far as you know, renewables and whatnot, will be overbuilt. And that sounds weird, but at the end of the day, Everyone's like, oh, it's going to cost an insane amount of money to put storage everywhere to replace the needs of having peak load everywhere, retiring coal plants, retiring gas-fired plants. The investment cost about storage is going to be insane. The truth of the matter is you don't need that much storage. You need enough storage. And what you want to do is you want to overbuild the solar PV capacity. Solar is going to be so cheap to build that you can build a lot more than you dispatch on a daily basis. And during the peak periods of the day, you'll curtail some of that solar production. And then in the early morning and the later evening, you'll fully dispatch your entire solar PV system to give you more of a continuous, smooth production profile over the course of the day. Solar is going to be so cheap. It's going to be insanely cheap, especially utility scale, but even distributed level. And if you pair that with just a little bit of storage, you can create baseload quality power at a fraction of the cost of what we do now. Those are amazing hypotheses, and I agree with you. I'm really interested, as well as the last one you said, because obviously it's going to be you know renewable resources. Going back to your acid rain comment from the 1980s, and then as well cheaper and then more distributed, it just changes the way electric generation happens. Obviously, you'll still have different technologies. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, and also it's compensated. There's already the business model. Like you mentioned, time of use rates, and we're like real time pricing. In some cases, if there's way 
way, way over production in the middle of the day in certain areas, you might see a negative price. Like you will be paid to curtail your system rather than to sell kilowatt hours out. Or you can avoid a penalty by curtailing your system. So people are going to start looking at what the balancing point is to add storage or add more solar or just plan on curtailing midday for certain seasons. The economics are going to change, but ultimately the value the systems provide once the business models catch up with them still will be far in excess of what can be provided by classic fossil fuel central power station. You basically come from an energy economics background, a family of inventors. How did you come up with the first collar product that you created? Was it through like a technical team that you managed to create that? Or do you have like a technical knowledge? I'm just curious because it's like a hardware product that you saw a value for it based on, you know, working at a previous company. Then you applied for the DOE Sunshot initiative. would be great to get more information because that's very unique. Let me put a shout out for makerspaces and incubators and accelerators everywhere. Right now, the U.S. Department of Energy has an American-made network for solar that basically provides resources for people with great ideas and a whole bunch of like incubators and makerspaces that are on board as partners and collaborators to provide resources to people who may have a great idea but not the technical expertise to do so. I started this pretty late. I was you know late 30s when I started the company, so I've been around the block a few times. But you don't have to be in your late 30s and wait till you have a, a Rolodex of good people to work with. If you're you know, just out of school, you can talk to you know, engineering professors at your school, or you can go to one of these makerspaces and say, hey, I have this thing. Anyone who want to do electrical engineering can help me out with this idea. You know, we've got some equity in the company. Let's go try to find some funding. There are a lot of things that are available now that didn't used to be available. People who have you know, good ideas, but are not technically savvy. I leaned on them heavily at first, and then over time, built out our engineering team with additional resources. So there are ways in that used to not be available. Also, the cost of starting a company now is super easy. You get to start the company, use Google Suite or any number of other like all-in, plug-and-play you know, operating systems for your company. It is a remarkably easy to get started. That's great perspective, you know, being a non-technical founder with an idea and then building that team. Another great point is how easy it is to start a company today. Like anyone could start it. You don't have to wait till your late 30s and have a Rolodex to be able to start a company that could add value. Although, if you do want to wait to a little bit later in life, that's cool too, because more likely than not, you know, you'll have a bit of a nest egg to fall back on and you can self-finance for a while as you get the thing off the ground. I had that benefit as well. So the right age to start a company is whatever age you're at right now, if you want to start a company. <laughs> and that's also put it out of. Yeah, that is great advice. This has been an amazing interview. If people want to learn more about Connector or you, like, what's the best way for them to do that? I myself am a bit of a social media Luddite. And so we have a marketing team that's trying to kick my bum into getting more involved in Twitter, things like that. But the truth of the matter is like LinkedIn is like our go-to. That's where you can follow the company on LinkedIn, Connector. And we publish a lot of updates there. We're pretty active there. And of course, our website, Connector, connectder.com. And yeah, we provide updates there pretty frequently as well. This has been an amazing interview. Like you provided great perspective. I appreciate you making time out of your schedule to speak. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks a lot, Benai. This has been fun. Thank you. I look forward to hearing the progress. It seems like a very exciting time and with exponential growth, you know, pretty much happening very quickly. So thank you again. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. Thank you.